morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. A sell-off hits Wall Street in Europe with losses down around 2% in both areas. The Dow plummets 317 points, knocking out most of the gains for the year. In other headlines, Israel and Hamas agree to a three-day ceasefire. Retail sales fall more than expected here in Hong Kong. And tycoon Li Ka-shing's two flagship companies report sharply higher earnings. And on the tech front, a French upstart makes a bid for T-Mobile U.S. First, a little audio food for thought. Um, you can blame Argentina, you can blame Russia, the Gaza Strip, you can blame the GDP number and the Fed, but ultimately it's just the market was tired and kind of needed a correction. Analyst Tony Dwyer there talking about the big sell-off overnight. We'll take a look at some of the reasons for that, including this. Argentina is the classic case of a serial defaulter. So we'll hear more from Morgan Stanley's Vince Reinhardt later about Argentina and the effect that it had on the psyche of investors overnight. Guests on the program this morning include Francis Lun from Geosecurities on Markets. Columnist Shuli Ren from Barron's will be along for a look at opportunities in China, India, Thailand and Indonesia. And in our industry segment, we'll take a look at restaurants. Sheila Chan and Angela McDonald from the Cafe Deco Group will be live in our studios after 8.30. Briefly now, let's check the Asian markets and uh, how they are trading at the moment. In Australia, the ASX 200 down 11 points at 56.11. That's only a fifth of 1%, but it is early days. In Seoul, the Kospi is down about two-thirds of 1%, and stocks in Japan moving down about half a percent. The dollar is trading at 102.79 yen, so really not much change there. The euro slipping further. So this week has been about dollar strength and weakness in the euro. The euro is now at 1.338 U.S. dollars. The Aussie dollar at 92.98, so it has fallen against the greenback. And the pound is now at 13 Hong Kong dollars and 8 cents. Some people saying we have seen the high for the pound uh, in this period. Okay, on to the news flow and then the guests on Wall Street stocks, part of a global sell-off. The yearly gains now mostly gone. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of re- excuses for the sell-off. It's been a very tired market to begin with. It it's been a very frustrating few months because the internals of the market have been correcting. So portfolio managers or individual investors can look at their stocks and say, "Geez, how could the market be at a new high when my portfolio is not?" The Dow was down 317 points, or 1.9%, to 16,563. It was the biggest drop in U.S. equities since February 3rd. The S&P 500 was down a full 2% at 1930. Just a day or two ago, it was at 1970. The MSCI All Country World Index was down 1.5%. Stocks down about one8 to 2% in Europe. The yield on the 10-year Treasury was little changed at 2.56%. Well, Sprint was down 5.3%, leading losses among phone stocks. Uh, that uh, One of the interesting stories out overnight was Francis Iliad is offering to buy a stake in T-Mobile U.S., and T-Mobile was up more than 5%. More on that later. The S&P 500 is up about 4.5% this year and reached a record high on July 24th. So what was that, just a week ago? It has gone without a 10% correction since the year 2011. Back to Tony Dwyer. He looks more deeply at the backdrop for the rise this year. 
The major equity indices in the mega cap stocks moving higher over recent months is more of a, a lack of any sellers than any real significant pickup in buyers. In other words, if you know, you can have a stock go up by having a single buyer if there are no sellers, and that's kind of what's happened. It's been a very illiquid, low volume move up. Now, fundamentally, the, the backdrop remains terrific. Earnings have been coming in well ahead of expectations. I mean, even even better than the usual shenanigans that corporate America plays in under underestimating their or under projecting their earnings. It's been a very good quarter for earnings. The economy is clearly picking up steam, and that's brought in some fear of the Fed, which ultimately is probably going to be a healthy thing. He says big investors have not had a lot of other alternatives from stocks. This story isn't, in my view, buying equities here isn't just about, you know, strong earnings. What it really is about is a lack of any investment alternatives for the big institutions and pension funds that have to meet a certain amount for, and for the people listening. If you're, if you're say, the state of California, and you have benefits that you have to pay out, and you have to pay out seven and a half, you have to make seven and a half percent a year to be able to pay out those benefits. If you're in any components of fixed income, it almost makes it virtually impossible. So your investment alternatives, are, other than private equity, um, are very, very few and far between. And it is those that equity arena that's the most attractive. One of the other things having an impact today, Banco Espirito Santo in Portugal fell the most on record and the bond slumped. The Portuguese lender was ordered to raise capital following a 3.6 billion euro net loss in the first half of the year. And back to Mr. Reinhardt, he says Argentina has worried some investors about the rest of the world and growth and performance of of the governments uh, outside the United States. Argentina is the classic case of a serial defaulter, uh, to use a phrase of wife Carmen and Ken Rogoff in their, in their book. Uh, so there, there's a lot of history here, here. And over the years, because of those serial defaults, Argentina <clears throat> marginalized itself in terms of international finance. Argentina missed a deadline yesterday to pay $539 million in interest after two days of negotiations in New York failed. The talks failed to produce an agreement with creditors from the last default back in 2001. A U.S. judge ruled that the payment couldn't be made unless those investors uh, got the $1.5 billion that they claimed from that default back in 2001. Standard & Poor's said Argentina is in default. On the global economy, Mr. Dwyer said it's doubtful the rest of the world will show much of a pickup in growth this year. The global economy, I, a lot of people have been make, trying to make the case that the a global economy is going to pick up steam, and I, I just am not seeing it in any of the numbers. And so while you've got the U.S. doing a little bit better, it's not exactly like we have a robust economic backdrop, and the rest of the globe is slowing down. And just uh, on that, uh, looking at our retail sales here, of course, our economy has been performing well in Hong Kong, but Hong Kong's retail sales down more than expected in June, down 6.9% from a year ago. It's the fifth consecutive month as sales have dropped. In May, revised figures put shop sales down 3.9%. Sales of jewelry, watches, clocks, and gifts, valuable gifts, continue to be the hardest hit. They plunged by more than 28% last month. But the sale of motor vehicles and their parts were actually much higher, up 18%. A government spokesman said in the near term, the retail sector will remain susceptible to the challenging pattern of visitor spending. Uh, The near 7% drop in store sales last month came as the number of mainland visitors to Hong Kong rose 7.8% year on year. But uh, those mainland visitors are also spending less. Let's say good morning now to Francis Lun, the chief executive officer of Geosecurities. Good morning. 
Francis, good morning. Good morning. So there's a lot of other Hong Kong news, uh, yep. Hong Kong earnings, Hutchison earnings, uh, the I-bonds, which I'll do a little bit later, but uh, we can reference it in yeah. our discussion. Uh, so a big sell-off overnight. Uh, interested mm-hmm. in your take. Well, I think uh, it's really expected because, uh, as many commentators have said, uh, the U.S. economy is really grow- growing very modestly. And there's no reason that the uh, uh, U.S. market is like in a bull run. It's been in a bull run for the last five years. And the valuation is close to 17 times. So, so just barely 10% below the uh, bull run of 2007. So by any measure, I think uh, uh, the U.S. market is overpriced. Overvalued, so so it's begging for a correction. Everybody, everybody uh, uh, predicted it, uh, and it finally happened. So, so I think th- this is really no surprise. So, uh, so I, th- I think the U.S. All market things, should fall again. All of these things have been uh, there. One mm. thing that was kind of fresh overnight. Uh, you know, in my mind, yep. uh, you know, I think that the employment cost index picking up in the U.S. would definitely uh, make some investors nervous that this yep. will lead to the Fed raising interest rates more quickly. Now, I don't understand why the 10-year didn't change much. It just stayed at uh, around 2.5%. The 10-year yield is 2.56%. Mm-hmm. Not much of a change there, but the employment cost in- index, uh, I just have to top of my head, I think it was up 0.7% from 0.3, which was expected. Mm-hmm. And that may not sound like a lot, but it shows that wages are going up. Yeah, if you have, definitely. If you have wages going up mm-hmm. uh, and an yeah. economy well, growing inflation at, will go up, I think. Well, that, that's that, right. That and 4%, the, uh, 4% growth in the second quarter mm-hmm. might get some of these folks, you know, these um, big institutional investors want to, you know, just uh, take profits as little insurance. Sure. Uh, actually, that is what has – what uh, Janet – uh, Yellen has been very about is that the lack of wage growth amid this economic recovery. Uh, the wage earners, the work, the workers of America are not really benefiting from the economic recovery. Salaries remain very low until very recently, the recent month. And, and, and finally, the, uh, the, uh, Improved economy and the improved uh, employment outlook uh, have resulted in wage increase. And this plus the inflation in food, I think, uh, will, will drive up the inflation rate. Uh, this year has been, the, well, while there's been flood in the north and then there is a drought in the south and, and in California, and actually, agricultural prices, the farm uh, farm pro- uh, producers uh, 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 prices are rising, and of course, the price of beef rose fifteen percent. So you have about four percent um, annual inflation in the price of food, and this will seep into the cost structure of America, and of course, in the wages and then in in the manufacturing costs. So, so I think uh, uh, people so, so are predicting is- that interest will be increased next year. Yeah, but do you think that this means that um, Wall Street will see a healthy correction uh, or is this a start of uh, more of a bear market? 
I I don't think it should, it will be a bear market. I think I think it will it, it will be a correction. So maybe, we didn't see a lot of buying on the dip overnight, but uh-huh. you know maybe it takes uh, maybe it runs through a few weeks. Do you think you'll see ten percent? We haven't seen that since yeah, twenty eleven. Well, uh, uh, yesterday was only down three hundred points. So 2%. so so you should look at the the market falling. We have, for a ten percent correction, the market will have to fall to fifteen thousand. So I think uh, this is what we are looking at: fifteen to sixteen thousand, maybe fifteen thousand five, and then I would call it a healthy correction, and 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 to uh, digest all these uh, pr- uh, profit taking from the short term traders. So what is the impact on Asia then? We don't mm-hmm. see a lot of selling this morning, although, you know, you see markets down half a percent or so. Mm-hmm. That's not um, commensurate with uh, what we saw in Europe and the U.S. Yeah, well, the the difference in the China and Hong Kong is that the valuation in China and Hong Kong are low. Uh, in China, I think still about under 10 times. In Hong Kong, it's about 11 times. But if you take away 10 cents, you look at the properties and the banks, the valuation, the PE ratio is something like six times. And the yield is uh, 6%. So uh, even after rising uh, 1,500 points in the month of July, the shares are still quite cheap. And compare with the international prices like S and P and all that. So, so I think uh, uh, Hong Kong. I think the Hong Kong market will fall today. Uh, we will have a mild adjustment, but it will not be. Uh, uh, it will not be uh, in the scale of ten percent, maybe two or three percent. Something in the back of the mind of investors will also be the Hong Kong Shanghai Connect. Uh, yeah. Do you think that that will also, um, you know? keep the market from falling too much. Uh, definitely. Uh, from what we gauge is that international investors are very keen to buy A shares. That's why we see a, a strong run-up uh, a, a buying of these A50 ETFs like uh, 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 2823 and 2822, they, they, they experience an inflow of something like $10 billion over the past month. So, if, so you can see that institutional investors are betting on that ACS will rise because of the inflow of uh, overseas money. So you say that ties into the um – HKMA having to intervene to uh, yeah. keep the Hong Kong dollar from from uh, expanding uh, to the strong yeah, side. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But if you were looking to buy A shares, you wouldn't really move money in here into Hong Kong dollars, would you? You'd you'd move it straight into <laughs> renminbi, wouldn't you? Yeah, but 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 some sometimes you you uh, uh, if if you have to buy A shares, you still cannot buy it now. But you you can buy the surrogate. You can buy the Asia ATF, which okay, are denominated so, yeah, exactly. in Hong Kong dollars. So if they, if they if they move it in here and they want to buy the A50, uh, the yeah. ETF, then they do have to put it into Hong yeah, Kong dollars. Yeah, definitely. So you think that's part and parcel of why the Hong Kong dollar is so strong at the moment? Uh, I think so. I think uh, uh, people are expecting the uh, A shares to rise substantially this year, and also the A shares will rise substantially this year. So they are what, what you can call front run. To Shanghai and uh, Hong Kong Connect. (laughs) Careful with the use of that term. (laughs) Get get people in trouble. Uh, But I know what you mean uh, in a figurative sense, Uh, maybe Mm, not a literal sense. Okay, let me do a little bit of earnings and then we'll talk some more. Uh, Chungkong Holdings said first half profit jumped almost 60% on a rebound in home sales plus a one off gain more from RTHK's Priscilla Ung.
Chen Kong said in a statement that its net income rose to $21.3 billion from $13.4 billion a year earlier. The statement also quoted the company's chairman Li Kaxing as saying that buyer sentiment had improved recently and construction costs were expected to continue increasing. But he pointed out that policy measures will remain a major factor in determining the direction of the local property market. The company also recorded a gain of eight billion dollars from the initial public offering of Mr. Li's electric utility company. The statement added that a special dividend of seven dollars per share would be paid out. Priscilla Ung with that report.、Uh, Hutchison Wampoa's first half earnings more than doubled to $28.4 billion. Mr. Lee's Ports to Telecom conglomerate said the profit was buoyed by a one off gain from the listing of electricity assets and growth in areas including infrastructure and telecommunications. Hutchison's revenue amounted to just over $204 billion, up 3% from the first half of last year. So, Francis、uh, Lun is with me from、uh, Geosecurities, the chief executive officer. What did you make of those earnings from Mr. Lee's、uh, two flagship companies? Well, from, from what you, when you look at Hutchison's、uh, figures, you, you can see that in all, in all his business sectors,、uh, profit growth is slowing down. What you see is single digit profit growth in all sectors,、uh, retailing, ports, uh, uh, And, uh, uh, and the only,、uh, sector that's really growing very strongly is really what you call proprietary trading. Uh, the, the contribution from that part actually tripled. Over last year. But, but so, this is the basis of Mr. Lee is,、uh, as an asset trader, isn't that, it? Definitely. Be- because his core business is really not growing in double digit growth. So,、uh, in the past few years, he has had to sell his assets to uh, uh, Singapore government. Uh, because he, But he, if you buy he, Hutchison and Chiang Kong, you buy Mr. Lee's trading capabilities and his, his management team's trading yeah, capabilities. Yeah, definitely. But, but when you have so much money, like,、uh, I think it's something like $140 billion, and you look at it worldwide, uh, uh, where can you buy a business that, that will yield a return in, in excess of 10%? It doesn't really exist in, in any of the big businesses unless you are, you are willing to take a gamble, invest in some unknown、uh, internet startups. Well, and, and Hutchison has not been doing that. Unless、um, global trade really picks up, then yeah, the, shipping, yeah, the shipping parts would do well. But、uh, so far, as we heard in one of the earlier comments from Tony Dwyer, the global economy is underperforming.、Uh, yeah, definitely. So, so I think really it's time to sell Hutchinson and also sell Chiang Kong because、uh, Chiang Kong、uh, hasn't bought any land in Hong Kong for the past two years since C.Y.、Uh, Leung came to power. And so after next year, he will have nothing, to, no, no flesh to sell. So he will have,、uh, Chiang Kong will have an earnings gap starting in 2017. So right now it's time to sell Chiang Kong and buy Sun Hong Kong properties. Would you sell most of the local developers? 
Uh, I, th- I think Shandong K develop, uh, Shandong K property is still good because, uh, because the ongoing trial is the share price has been depressed artificially. So the company is still a good company and it has a lot of land. I think that okay. is a good part. We've got Shuli Ren waiting. Uh, I'd like to bring her in in just a moment. Uh, give me some of your top picks at the moment, Francis. Uh, uh, this year we will buy the mainland brokers and there's one I like most is Guotai Jun An, which is 1788. Because the market, uh, the China market will, will boom, and then uh, these companies, especially Guotai Junan, will benefit from it. Okay, so that's one of the non bank financial institutions. Definitely. Uh, do you think that the banks themselves um, should pick up with PEs around four and five and six? Uh, if you don't see a blow up in, the, in property, and it looks like the government is committed now to that not happening. Uh, yeah then shouldn't the banks prosper? Well, the problem with the banks, they, they are instruments of the government. They have to do ten, ten, too many policy lendings, which really depress the earnings in the long run. On the other hand, for brokers, they don't have such burden. So it's, it is much better to go with the stockbrokers than with the banks. All right, Francis, thank you very much for You're joining welcome. us here on Money for Nothing. Francis Lun, the Chief Executive Officer of Geo Securities. You never give me Twenty-four minutes after eight o'clock, we talk a lot about funny paper on this program, and we welcome now to our studio Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based columnist for Barons. Shuli, good morning. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me here. Yes, it's great to have you on the program. Uh, we've got a nice uh, segment coming up. Uh, I was a little surprised to see that you were happy to talk about India, Indonesia, and Thailand, because I was thinking more China and Hong Kong, and particularly technology. But it's good because you are um, looking at uh, lots of different areas. Uh, what is, um, you know, what is, I guess we should talk a little bit about the sell-off first overnight. Uh, does that have a big impact on trading, do you think, this week? Um, I think uh, Asia markets uh, are trading on the um, a momentum of their own now. So like uh, U.S. markets, uh, as Francis was saying, are no longer cheap, right? So And uh, Hong Kong and uh, uh, China are still cheap. So I think it would be pretty different. So one of the things you have to worry about, obviously, when you talk about uh, Wall Street, is whether or not there's correlation or whether or not we go a different direction. It sounds like both you and Francis are saying we will absorb some of the money that is being sold out of Wall Street. We'll, we'll be the beneficiary of some of it. Uh, right. And uh, uh, Brian um – talking about technologies. Uh, I wasn't planning on talking about that uh, on the show, but um, one thing that I noticed was, uh, well, I mostly cover Asian markets, like uh, some of the U.S. tech sales were partly due to the earnings coming from out of Taiwan, the UMC, the, the semiconductors uh, uh, con- contractor business. Uh, they, um, they, they warned a weak uh, third quarter outlook. So like uh, what you see is uh, last night, uh, uh, Micron, for example, it's a big U.S. Uh, semiconductor, right? Yeah. It was down quite a bit. It was. Yeah. You're seeing a, a real bifurcation now. You're seeing some companies uh, surge on earnings, I mean, really to the upside. And then you're seeing an equal number of stories. If they are disappointing with their outlook, you're seeing big sell-offs as well. Um, even overnight, LinkedIn came out with good earnings. 
the stock shot up. And you look uh, right across the board, there's a handful of other ones that uh, were down, say, 10%, including uh, Yelp, for for instance. Uh, so investors are getting very – it's not everything moving together. They're getting um, very particular about the company specifics. Right, exactly. And uh, uh, LinkedIn and the Yelp, they, they basically are very, very expensive companies. Right? We're, we're talking about trading on eyeballs. But even pretty solid uh, business uh, uh, enterprise companies, for example, there is a, a $10 billion company called Akamai Technologies. Uh, what they do is uh, they do web security and the routing services. And uh, they trade at uh, about 23 times earnings. And uh, it's a good company. And uh, their earnings were strong. Outlook were okay as well. Um, but the, the market was still disappointed a little bit, especially in early hour tradings, because uh, they didn't beat the, uh, beat the high end of their guidance. Yeah, if you come in about even with uh, guidance uh, and analyst expectations, uh, you run the risk of getting sold down at the moment, given the market mood. But uh, people are so hungry for good performers that when you see Twitter or Facebook with you know sharply better earnings, then they're massively rewarded. The Russell 2000, which has a lot of these smaller tech companies in there, is, looks like it's kind of double topped out um, and it's been suffering here just in the past week or so. Uh, do you think that uh, we're going to see another March-April sell-off in tech? Um, March, the sell-offs were uh, the, the multiples then were even higher. But that was everybody, you know. It wasn't, you know, nobody was being rewarded then. Right. Um, okay. Well, well, we'll have to wait and see. No, nobody can predict the future. Um, what you see now in Indonesia, um, it seems that investors are still a little bit nervous with the challenge to the result of the presidential poll. So uh, the money that a lot of people thought would would uh, roll in is kind of on the sidelines. Uh, what do you think about Indonesia at the moment? Well, uh, it goes back uh, to uh, multiples again, like in India, Indonesia, and Thailand, all of them are very expensive right now. Like I think they're the same. Basically, they have the common theme, uh, trading off of uh, political stability and the hope. Right. Indonesia. Uh, Jokowi, uh, first of all, like, uh, there's the contender issue. And secondly, like, uh, he, his coalition doesn't even have a majority in the parliament right now. So people are sitting on the sidelines, basically trying to look at, uh, uh, what he could do with the government. And as you say, equity valuations in India, another election story that, um, that pleased investors. Uh, uh, that one, um, since stocks have become kind of pricey, they, they have started to, um, maybe consolidate a bit. Well, uh, India is, uh, I believe, trading at uh, 16 times earnings. And uh, in the past, uh, uh, I, I, I looked at the one JP Morgan report. They uh, looked at uh, uh, the historical per- performance. And uh, basically, India, when they were trading at 16 times, the earnings momentum uh, from quarter to quarter was also five time, uh, 5%, right? And uh, right right now, Indian company is not quite that. Uh, I think uh, this week, uh, there there is uh, uh, this um, uh, infrastructure uh, engineering company called uh, Larson and uh, Tobor, and it was very popular foreign uh, com- uh, stock, right? And uh, it was down seven percent in one day, I think, on Tuesday because their earnings uh, disappointed a little bit. What looks the best uh, right across the region now? If some of these markets look fairly valued. Um, Believe it or not, I, I think it's China, and you know I have been pretty negative on China. Um, one thing is, uh, um, I think, uh, and uh, a lot of people think as well, like uh, that uh, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption drive could be a catalyst. China is still cheap, right? And uh, uh, 
the the anti-corruption drive is important because uh, um, China's state-owned enterprises are huge. They for the MSCI China index, they have about fifty-five to sixty percent of the whole index weight, right? So, as Xi Jinping tones down the corrupt officials, and as China are uh, as Beijing is divesting some of its state assets, the orderly divestiture. It should be very important catalyst okay. for the stock market. All right, Shuli, stay with us. Uh, normally, I'd let you go, but we've got a little extra time in the program now, a full hour, and uh, we've got uh, the news coming up here in just a moment. Maybe we can talk a little bit more right after the news uh, on RTHK Radio 3. Brief look at the weather before the news. Mainly fine, very hot, isolated showers expected, and some thunderstorms. The maximum temperature around 33 degrees today with moderate west to southwesterly winds. The outlook, sunny periods, just a few showers expected over the weekend. And God is Friday. The news is next. Thirty-one. The news with Ben Jeb. Multiple gas pipeline explosions have ripped through the southern Taiwanese city of Kaohsiung, killing at least 20 people and injuring almost 300. The explosion sparked an inferno that tore through the city's Changjin district, sending terrified residents fleeing a huge ball of flames. It's the second tragedy to befall Taiwan in just over a week. A trans-Asia plane crashed in bad weather nine days ago, killing 48 people. Cindy Sui reports. The authorities have, have warned everyone, and including through the television uh, news stations, to stay away from the area, do not go there and try to take pictures. So um, st- the firefighters are still trying to put out the fires, and they're still trying to see if any people are trapped under the, um, the rubble. So it's still too soon to say what the, uh, the extent of the, 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 the death toll is. Israel and Hamas have agreed to a 72-hour ceasefire in their conflict in the Gaza Strip starting later today. The deal was announced by the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. They said the truce was critical to giving innocent civilians a much-needed reprieve from violence. Here is Ban Ki-moon's spokesman. This humanitarian ceasefire will commence at 8 a.m. local time on Friday, August 1, 2014. It will last for a period of 72 hours unless extended. During this time, the forces on the ground will remain in place. We urge all parties to act with restraint until this humanitarian ceasefire begins and to fully abide by their commitments during the ceasefire. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. The time is 8.33. Among the stories we'll be looking at more closely in this half hour, of course, the gas pipeline explosions in Taiwan, and also a glimmer of hope in the Gaza Strip with a three-day ceasefire announced. We'll also be taking a close look at the restaurant industry in Hong Kong, speaking with Sheila Chan, Director of Marketing and PR, and Angelo McDonald, who is Director of Culinary Development at Cafe Deco Group. And so those will be coming up in just a few minutes. And we'll also so uh, chat some more with Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based columnist for Barons, looking at the move by Xi Jinping, a strong move on corruption, anti-corruption in China.
First, some of our top news stories in greater depth. Multiple gas pipeline explosions have ripped through Taiwan's southern city of Kaohsiung. More than 20 people have been killed and scores have been injured. The National Fire Agency says five firemen are among the dead. It says more than 200 people have been taken to hospital. It says the cause of the blasts late last night is not immediately clear even this morning. Taiwan-based journalist Cindy Sui took, uh, told Ian Pooler... Uh, more about the casualties. The press release issued by the National Fire Agency not long ago says four four of the fire four of the people killed are the firefighters uh, who were responding to the scene. What basically happened was they received phone calls about reports of a, some kind of chemical leak in the area around 8:46 p.m. local time, and right around midnight, explosions started to happen in in this district of Kaohsiung. And this area, the explosions cover an area that's quite large, about two to three square kilometers with many residences, as well as some factories in there. So they quickly evacuated more than 1,000 people to schools and community centers. And at this point, they're still trying to search through the rubble of the, the uh, some of the damaged buildings and the ripped open uh, streets and sidewalks to see if anybody uh, else is buried in, inside. So they don't have a final death toll yet, and they're still trying to figure out the cause of this, this uh, these explosions. Um, what what they what what they're looking into is whether they had anything to do with the uh, petrochemical companies having running pipelines along the sewage system in the area. So that's something they're looking into. Um, but in the meantime, they just the, the main thing is for them to keep people away from this area. So the premier has responded to the scene, and the mayor of Kaohsiung as well, and they're t- telling people to stay away from this area. So it's still not really clear then sort of uh, what the source of this gas was, uh, whether it was from this uh, pipeline from the petrochemical companies or some utility uh, gas supply. Right, that, that's exactly true. They, that's what they're saying right now. And they're still looking into the exact cause of the explosion. Um, some of the local media said that, um, they quoted an eyewitness saying uh, they think the, the poisonous gas came from an old railway and construction site uh, in Kaohsiung's uh, light rapid transit system. But we don't have that confirmed. We don't know exactly uh, where the gas explosion happened. They're still trying to figure out the source of the, the gas or other chemical leak. What kind of a response team has been assembled to deal with this incident? Well, hundreds of uh, soldiers have been dispatched. We, the last we heard was about 300 soldiers have been dispatched to the scene, along with firefighters from Kaohsiung and also neighboring cities who have also been sent to, to put out, try to put out the fires. That's Cindy Soy, a journalist in Taiwan, speaking with RTHK's Ian Pooler. A new glimmer of hope that the fighting may be stopping in Gaza. Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas have agreed to a 72-hour humanitarian ceasefire starting today. The deal was announced by the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry and the U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. Mr. Ban's spokesman, Stefan Duyarich, said the truce was critical to give innocent civilians a much-needed reprieve from violence. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and United States Secretary of State John Kerry announced that the United Nations representative in Jerusalem, Special Coordinator Robert Seri, has received assurances that all parties have agreed to an unconditional humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. This humanitarian ceasefire will commence at 8 a.m. local time on Friday, August 1st, 2014. It will last for a period of 72 hours unless extended. During this time, the forces on the ground will remain in place. 
We urge all parties to act with restraint until this humanitarian ceasefire begins and to fully abide by their commitments during the ceasefire. The ceasefire was announced shortly after the United States issued its most trenchant criticism yet of Israel's military operations in Gaza. The Pentagon said the conflict was killing and wounding too many Palestinian civilians. More on that from the BBC's Nick Bryant in New York. They condemned the shelling yesterday, but they didn't say it was Israeli shelling. But today they said there's little doubt of that and that this was totally unacceptable and totally indefensible. The Pentagon as well complaining that civilian casualties in Gaza are too high and that Israel needs to do more to reduce them. So double-barreled criticism from the White House and the Pentagon, all part of the same Obama administration, of course, the strongest words of criticism yet. What the UN Security Council had today was a briefing from UN officials, uh, one of whom was on the ground. Uh, he's the head of the UN's Palestinian Relief Agency, Philip Kronbull. Uh He warned that if uh, uh, large-scale displacements continued, the humanitarian situation would get worse, that UN facilities were already overcrowded. They're struggling to deal with 240,000 people at the moment who've, who've sought shelter. That's, uh, and 440,000 people have been displaced. That's a quarter of the population in Gaza. So he warned of this mounting humanitarian crisis. He warned of Gaza facing a precipice. He also said that under international law, Israel might have to assume direct responsibility as the occupying power, as he put it, uh, for these large-scale displacements and for the welfare of the people who are fleeing their homes. BBC's Nick Bryant in New York reporting. The time is now 20 minutes before 9 o'clock. Get a market update now in Asia. The Nikkei is down about 90 points, a drop of half a percent. We are seeing more selling now than we saw right at the open. Looking at Australia, the market's down one and a quarter percent. That's a drop of 69 points for the ASX 200 to 55.53. And the Kospi is down seven points to 2068 uh, in Seoul. Looking at um, reports coming out today on the economy in China, the July manufacturing PMI from China due at 9 o'clock this morning, the HSBC China manufacturing PMI at 9.45, and we'll also see Macau July casino revenue. We're joined in our studios by Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based colum- uh, columnist for Barron's. Shuli, you were mentioning earlier that you do uh, continue to like China, and that's basically because of two things. One, low valuations, and you think that the anti-corruption drive will actually be a positive. Can you continue with that theme? Well, uh, the anti-corruption drive, there are two reasons why I think it's positive. First of all, it has a a positive sentiment towards state-owned assets, right, which constitute more than half of the MSCI China index. And secondly, it's about political economy. Well, why... uh, We uh, we are pretty sure Xi Jinping hasn't made a lot of enemies right now, right? And the while he's rocking the political boat, he's unlikely to rock the economic boat, which means that he will do, uh, he will continue with the mini stimulus packages to ensure China reaches around 7.5% target. And we know China's uh, hard landing has been a, an overhand to the Hong Kong stock market. What are some of the mini stimulus uh, packages that are having the most impact? Uh, so like uh, the, uh, the uh, reserve ratio cuts? require uh, reserve ratio cuts, some infrastructure products, and uh, there there is some rumors of, uh, well, uh, uh, by the Chinese media that uh, Xi Jinping is uh, uh, putting out uh, targeted uh, um, uh, loans 
to certain sectors of the economy. Some people have uh, been writing that there may be a backlash against uh, the president, that this is looking, uh, at least on uh, you know, in one, one account, that uh, this can be a little bit of a, of a purge uh, of kind of consolidating power. Um, do you expect that? Or do you think that the president, uh, you know, he took 10 months or so to, to really uh, move into this phase on uh, Zhou Yonggang, so... Um, Maybe he's cleared most of the hurdles. He probably has cleared a lot of the hurdles. We're all guessing, right? And yeah. uh, he has touched on the military, which he did not uh, do like uh, a couple of years ago. Um, but precisely because of that, he's going to ensure that Chinese people are reasonably happy with the economy. <laughs> yeah. And um, most people in China seem uh, still to be fairly content with the way that the economy is is moving. Seems that most of the um, gauges that measure uh, uh, the psychology of um, of people that they're fairly fairly comfortable, uh, especially with the new economy. And people have um, you know more advancement there. And it brings us to Tencent, Alibaba, and Baidu. Right. All of these companies uh, you know are outperforming. Uh, Tencent saw a big sell off in the in the spring, but now even um, if you look at the um, post split, it's taken out the previous uh, high. Do you think that um, the Alibaba listing will be something that um, really sparks a a huge interest in China stocks? Uh, There's a lot of interest in Chinese uh, internet stocks regardless. Um, Yes, I think Alibaba's uh, listings will be uh, very good. Um, I, I was uh, uh, in New York uh, back in May, and I talked to quite a, f- a few firm managers, and uh, they, they were pretty big, and uh, they, they were all, all, all very keen on uh, participating in Alibaba's. Yeah, and uh, we still don't know when, but it looks like it's, what, uh, late August, September maybe? Uh, they pushed it back. Yeah, okay. All right, so just before we go, um, what's the most important thing to look out for um, particularly here in Hong Kong and China over the next uh, six weeks? I think it's uh, interesting to look at the Chinese bank uh, earnings. I think uh, it's going to kickstart in about two weeks' time. Um, uh, the, the, the banks could turn out uh, to surprise on the upside because of the, the, uh, the increasing long-to-deposit ratios, like all the require, uh, reserve ratio cuts. Uh, so that, that's something worth looking at. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much, uh, Shuli, for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Shuli Ren, Hong Kong-based uh, columnist at Barron's. A couple of other notes. Quickly, the Monetary Authority says some 490,000 people have subscribed to the government's latest batch of I-bonds. That's down from 520,000 last year. And the total amount of I-bonds applied for totaled just over $29 billion. Also down. That's down more than a quarter from 2013. Analysts say the response was lukewarm, if you want to call it that because investors are focusing instead on local stocks as inflation eases. Only $10 billion worth of inflation-linked bonds will be issued. So each applicant is expected to be awarded an average of about two board lots. Money for nothing, the time 845. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money.
Very nice to move into our Tech in Two. That means technology updates running about two minutes or so with Angelina Draper. And she joins me now live in the studio. Angelina, good morning. Good morning. French mobile phone carrier Iliad has offered $15 billion in cash for a controlling stake in T-Mobile US. Parent company Deutsche Telekom says the offer of $33 per share from Iliad is not competitive as in, and is inferior to another offer from Sprint Corp for about $40 a share. Iliad operates the mobile and internet service provider free and sparked a price war in France with heavily discounted rates and a no-contract policy. In a statement, the company said T-Mobile and Iliad both establish similar disruptive positions in their respective markets. T-Mobile confirmed it received the offer but declined to make any further comments. LinkedIn is said LinkedIn is the latest technology company to post earnings that exceeded analyst estimate. The professional networking site posted strong third quarter earnings, including a 47% revenue increase to $533.9 million for the quarter. The company, which has over 300 million registered users, has been branching out from recruiting and subscription. Earlier this year, it launched a simplified Chinese version of its site and said it hoped to connect 140 million Chinese professionals. Previously, the site was available in China, in English, and had just over 4 million members. Apple's $3 billion acquisition of Beats Electronics may not be good news for all 700 employees of the headphone and music company. About 200 employees are reported to have received temporary job offers at Apple and are not guaranteed long-term jobs. Most of the roles are in finance, human resources and other roles where there is an overlap, said a person with knowledge of the plans. Two weeks ago in Singapore, taxi booking service Easy Taxi started taking orders within the WeChat messaging app. In an interview to Tech in Asia, the company's regional director for Southeast Asia, Jun Chan, said 5,000 rides had already been booked in that time. This is WeChat's first leap, leap into e-commerce outside of China. WeChat users booked over 100,000 taxi rides in China in just nine days through a partnership with Chinese taxi booking app Didi Dacha. WeChat is owned by Tencent Holding and is expected to reach 500 million users by the end of this year. Angelina, thank you. Angelina Draper with Tech in Two here on Money for Nothing. Well, as you mentioned earlier, Hong Kong retail sales down more than expected in June, down 6.9% from a year ago. With rents high and retail sales falling, it could have a very strong impact on the restaurant industry. So for our industry segment, which we often do towards the end of the program, we're looking at restaurants this morning, joined by Sheila Chan, Director of Marketing and PR, and Angelo McDonnell, Director of Culinary Development at Cafe Deco Group. Thanks very much for joining us uh, in the studios this morning. How are you? Great. <laughs> Good. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about uh, restaurant business. Uh, you know, the industry has been obviously making headlines. We've had food scares, uh, and particularly McDonald's and uh, and Yum Brands. Uh, their restaurants uh, in China have uh, have seen a scare from a supplier in Shanghai, Shanghai Husi. But here in Hong Kong, um, restaurants have done very well over the past uh, couple of years. It seems like it's been a, a good business to be in. Uh, Mr. McDonald, if we could go to you, uh, how is Cafe Deco performing this year? Um, actually, uh, good morning, by the way, and thanks for the invite. Uh, actually, the, um, I would say Hong Kong in general, the economy is really, really strong, um, and it seems like the the new um, a lot of new openings of restaurants. So basically, the whole city is doing really well. Cafe Deco, as a group itself, I think it's doing really well. Uh, I think just a few major factors uh, for a group like ours. One is 
labor and uh, rental. I think everybody's in the same boat with this one, but generally, we're actually doing quite well. So your costs are a lot higher. Um, every time you try to renew a lease, it's gone up probably at least 30 to 50 percent. Uh, how do you handle something like that? Do you have to make uh, big cuts elsewhere? Not really. I think if once you, I mean, there is a lot of landlords that are actually pretty loyal as well. And if you have a good, uh, a good brand and definitely a good concept, I think you can, you, you can work your way around it. Yeah. So it's interesting to look at the restaurant industry here. It seems that you have um, very um, plentiful fine dining uh, restaurants, and you also have lots of, um, uh, of dining that is directed more at um, people you know, with lower incomes, but not quite so much in the middle class. Uh, Sheila, do you agree with that? Is that a fact or, or is that uh, a sort of uh, misconception? Actually, for our portfolio restaurants, we have a very wide range. As you just mentioned, we have um, high-end restaurants and also some like um, our outlets that are more for the um, general Hong Kong people. But we do have a range of restaurants like our um, chain restaurants like Berliner, who are, like, which is like um, very popular among the middle-income range of people. What are some of the latest trends in restauranting that seem to be working? Uh, I'll mention one, and you tell me whether or not that uh, is having much of an impact. With rents being high, uh, some destination restaurants have, have come out and have found really out-of-the-way places and try to really build up a clientele, not by, um, you know, uh, people seeing the storefront and, and coming in and trying it, but through um, uh, social media. Actually, um, this is really one of the trends that is going on in the restaurant industry. With the uh, market, like as you know, the F&B industry is getting more and more competitive over the last 10 to 20 years. Um, there are actually a niche for um, this, these kind of restaurants like coming up, like the um, private kitchen where people will just um, rent like or, or like um, um, industrial flat or apartment, and then they will set up their own like um Restaurants where they would invite like a, a group of people there to try, and then through the word of mouth and also through the social media, they would just spread around the word where people will go to their place to try it out. But of course, like um, with us being a big group, we we have um, like well-established restaurant in different areas in Hong Kong. Like so, we, we are we are targeting a different range of people where our accessibility are much higher than these group of like restaurants. Mr. McDonald, do you think if rents continue to stay high like this, that we'll see lots of uh, restaurants go out of business? Yeah, actually, um, I, I definitely I would say that. Uh, I think in a city like Hong Kong, we see restaurants opening and closing all the time. Um, I would say like the, going back about 10, maybe 15 years, when we used to go for a, like a decent meal, you'd have to go to a hotel. Now, with like the new trend where there's a lot of uh, really good hot, really good restaurants, a lot of chefs have left actually hotels and opened up their own restaurants. And as you mentioned, there seem to be destination restaurants out of the way. And this is because a lot of chefs have like, a good reputation, they've got a good following, and I think we're going to see this in the future. So is it important to get a kind of superstar chef, a real headline um, you know, chef who can bring in business? Um, I think you can see now there's a lot of um, star chefs coming to the city, and I think uh, every every city um, needs their stars and their celebs. Uh, I, I think a city like Hong Kong is such a culinary hub in Asia. I think we really need them to come here, and we really need them to, to actually to uh, succeed. 
Yes, one of the things that we heard from Jamie Oliver uh, in an interview uh, this week with the opening of Jamie's Italian in Causeway Bay was that he thought that the city needed more kind of mid-priced restaurants to, um, to, to serve that, that sector of, um, of the community. Do, do you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think I mean the, um, I think you're going to see uh, uh, Gordon Ramsay will open soon, and I think you're going to see some other um, star chefs coming in. And uh, so I mean, is, that, is that the idea that if you're a, if you get a star chef and you can actually appeal to the middle class, that that's almost a, a new niche that people will exploit? No, I think it's just a different variety. I think a city as diverse as Hong Kong, I think we need it. Um, it seems like if you have a star chef, you're probably going to go for um, high end. Um, yeah, in some cases, if you refer to like Robuchon or um, you know Pierre Gagné, that's a different story. But uh, chefs like uh, Jamie um, Ramsey, um, uh, Mar- Mario Batali, I mean, all all of these they actually bring a different element to the city and uh, very affordable food. I mean, don't expect to see them behind the open kitchen, but they've got an amazing team behind them. One area that seems like it could be exploited, uh, I'll mention Cafe Deco because uh, you do kind of a nice blend of of Western and Asian food, uh, but it's high priced. You don't see too many restaurants doing that in the low to middle end. Why? Um, I mean, if you look at Cafe Deco when it opened 20 years ago, it was really seen as one of the trendsetter. And for a restaurant to be still open 20 years later, I mean, actually stands the, the test of time. I think the repetition is really good, but it's very labor-intensive with the open kitchens. I think for the lower-end uh, style, unless it's like an upper-market food court or something similar to this one, it's actually very difficult to achieve. And Sheila, what do you see as the biggest challenges uh, facing the group at the moment? Actually, I think like um, for our customer in, and actually people in Hong Kong in general, they are getting very big demanding with respect to where they dine and uh, whether we have new menus, new things coming up on a regular basis. And so that's why I think one of the challenges, not only with respect to the rent in Hong Kong, is also with respect to how we are going to um, attract more new customers and also keep our regular diners to keep coming to our restaurant. And um, we have been doing like a, a lot of like training with respect to our staff as well as um, marketing uh, initiative because like they are not only looking for good food quality, they are also looking for high service quality. And that's why like our group, we are always very dedicated to give our customer a full dining experience so that and also for our staff, they would give our customer a personal touch, which makes a difference to encourage people to come back to our restaurants again and again. Okay, well, thanks very much for joining us here, and best of luck uh, at the Cafe Deco Group. That's Sheila Chan, Director of Marketing and PR at Cafe Deco, and Angelo McDonald, Director of Culinary Development. Well, let's get back to our news coverage now this morning here on the program. The time is now four minutes before 9 o'clock. Some Dutch and Australian forensic scientists have finally reached the site of the downed Malaysian airliner in Ukraine that, after days of fierce fighting, prevented them from doing so. They were accompanied by a team of international monitors from the OSCE, the head of the Dutch team is Peter Jap Alderberg. The security situation is still very unstable. That's why we are not absolutely sure if we can reach the crash site with the whole team of experts in the short future. But we are more hopeful than we were yesterday. Tomorrow we will try once again to reach the crash area. If we succeeded, 
the expert will carry out limited searches at a few locations in the area. Meantime, Michelle Bokoricu of the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission said investigators were able to gather some evidence. Material was gathered in the sense of uh, documentation, photographically. They GPSed uh, a lot of locations and they got a very good uh, sense of the lay of the land. And then the expectation is the next trip that we, our OSC Special Monitoring Mission, coordinates out there for them. That would be when the, the very intensive work begins, including the resumption of the collection of human remains. The time is now two minutes before nine o'clock. The pro-Beijing imam of China's largest mosque has been murdered after conducting morning prayers. He's the latest victim of intensifying violence in Xinjiang. Alex Price reports. State media said Juma Tahir, the government-appointed imam of the 600-year-old Idkar Mosque in Kashgar, was stabbed to death on Wednesday by suspected Islamic militants. Mr Tahir, who was from the Uyghur ethnic minority, was a vocal and public supporter of Chinese policies in the region, something that made him deeply unpopular with many other Uyghurs. Police later shot dead two of his alleged attackers and arrested a third. His death comes two days after dozens of people were reportedly killed or injured in clashes with police in the same prefecture. Exiled Uyghur groups and rights groups say the government's repressive policies in Xinjiang, including controls on Islam, have provoked unrest, a claim Beijing denies. The central government commonly blames separatists from Xinjiang for carrying out terror attacks which have grown in scale over the past year and spread outside the restive and resource-rich region. In May, a market attack in Urumqi, Xinjiang's capital, left 39 people dead, while a deadly rampage by knife-wielding assailants at a train station in Kunming in March killed 29 people. That's our report for today. We'll just tell you about the weather before the news. Mainly fine and very hot today. Isolated showers, some thunderstorms later in the day. Maximum temperature about 33 degrees. The outlook, sunny periods from uh, the we- or over the weekend and a few showers expect. The news coming up next on Radio 3.